turn with me, if you will, to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is towards the very beginning of your Bible. It begins with Genesis, then Exodus, and then Leviticus. And what I have for you this morning is a portion of the scripture that is not widely read among us. And yet it is a very important portion of the scripture. I would say that my words to you this morning are rather simple. Simple is good, no? I'm told that at times I get a little too complex. Well, I think today I'm going to be rather simple. And I think you will appreciate it. And of course it will come directly from the scriptures. Leviticus chapter 16. What we see here is a scapegoat. You know what a scapegoat is? Well, we'll talk about it in a few moments. A scapegoat. If you take a look at Leviticus 16, right there at the beginning of your Bible, you'll see that uh, this rather long chapter, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. And like I did last week, I'm going to skim through it. I'll point out a few things that are in this chapter. But I'm going to ask you to go home and read it for yourselves. That you would go home and take time this week to read the specifics of chapter 16 and you may even want to read the context if you go back to chapter 15 you'll see that uh, it seems to deal with some rather vulgar things laws about bodily discharges and then it comes to chapter 16 the day of atonement what a contrast correct and we'll see why in just a few moments I do think that the book of Leviticus gets a bad rap uh, most of us do not read the book of Leviticus unless we're forced to. Maybe some of you are doing a daily reading plan for, of the scriptures and it takes you to the New Testament and then to the Old Testament and when you see Leviticus you say oh no. right? Or maybe you're having a hard time falling asleep at night so what do you do? You open to the book of Leviticus and out you go. But it is actually a very valuable book in the canon of the scriptures. And it's valuable because it points to the Messiah. The book of Leviticus is the beginning of our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's good to go backwards. There was a preacher not too long ago who said that we no longer need the Old Testament. Uh, that's just foolishness in all honesty. We need the entirety of the scriptures. The 66 books of the biblical canon including the book of Leviticus. There's great value in that book. Much of our understanding of who Christ is comes from the beginning of the scriptures, from the book of Leviticus even. And so I would recommend you read it. Just be wide awake when you read it. It points to the promised Messiah. Uh, that is to say that the Jesus Christ that we worship today and all the sacrifices and all the ceremonies that are incorporated in the Old Testament begins right here in this particular portion of the scriptures. If you've been part of the Old Testament survey class we're doing downstairs, you know that the theme of Leviticus is feasts and offerings. One person knows. I won't make any other commentary. Feasts and offerings. And the first 15 chapters of what, I think it's 27 chapters, the first 15 chapters are divided into two sections. Chapters 1 through 9 
gives us all types of sacrifices that the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, were supposed to uh, use in order to honor God and worship God. That's chapters 1 through 9. It's a rather lengthy list and rather complex, actually. And then if you look at chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, you see there some purity ceremonies by which the people had to approach God. In other words, they were not allowed to just come as you are. No, 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 no. Not in the Old Testament. They had to go through certain rituals in order to purify themselves. And there's reason for all of this. We're not going to discuss it all. But there was a reason for it. They were to purify themselves before they come to worship God. And thus, chapter 15 is about bodily discharges. Rather vulgar, I know, but part of the purity ceremonies. And so when we come to chapter 16, suddenly there's a great contrast in terms of content. And in chapter 16, you see the day of atonement, the day in which the sins of God's people would be paid for or atoned for, would be literally covered over. And what a contrast, right, between chapter 15 and 16. But all of the first prior uh, chapters were leading to this, this particular day of atonement. I think this is very exciting. I hope you get excited too as we look through this and, and the symbolism that's incorporated here in this chapter. The day of atonement, by the way, it just so happens that this past Tuesday night and Wednesday, October 4 and October 5, was Yom Kippur or the Jewish day of atonement. The Jewish community celebrated this chapter, what we see here in chapter 16, this past Tuesday night and all day Wednesday. Uh, let me skim through the chapter with you. So just follow along with your fingers there. If you uh, look at chapter 16, verse 1, it, it begins with a warning to Aaron uh, in light of what has just happened to his two sons. They died. And so there is a warning to the high priest, Aaron, that's the brother of Moses, a warning, a warning. In other words, you don't approach God just any way you want and do whatever you want. There were some specific, very specific requirements which they violated, and they died. If you move on to chapter 16, verses 2 to 5, there you see rather specific instructions to the high priest Aaron and to every high priest subsequent to him. There's uh, 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 instructions regarding worship and how to atone for the sins of the people in the tent of meeting. How to pay for the sins of the people of Israel. By the way, the tent of meeting was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And many people have no idea what the Ark of the Covenant uh, is, uh, unless, of course, they watched Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, and unfortunately, many people's knowledge of the Ark is based on that movie. But the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol by which God would use as a means of worshiping him and displaying his provision, uh, especially his provision of, of sacrifice by which sins would be paid for. And it was placed in this one particular room called the Holy of Holies. There was a holy place, and then there was a smaller Holy of Holies, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and the high priest was allowed to go there just once every year to make atonement for the sins. In fact, um, 
I always find this very interesting. The high priest would have a rope tied to his ankle in, clay, in case he was struck dead in a Holy of Holies or in case he got sick and died. Nobody would dare walk in there and retrieve his body. You were not allowed. So they would pull him out by the rope. Just in case. Just in case. After all, look at what happened to Aaron's sons. And so eventually, you may recall, the tent of meeting was replaced by this mobile tabernacle. It was called just that, tabernacle. And it was uh, far better than a tent of meeting, had a lot of symbolism involved. Eventually, the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. They take it away, and it makes its way back. It's placed in a tent, and then for 20 years, it stays in somebody's house until King David retrieves it, puts it in a tent in Jerusalem. And then one day, Solomon builds a temple a grand, beautiful building, temple number one, and there is the Ark of the Covenant. It's placed there. That is eventually destroyed. The city goes under siege, it's raided, the temple is destroyed, and then eventually the second temple is erected. And that temple lasted up until the year 70 A.D., about 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then it was destroyed by the Romans. And so there has been no temple for the Jewish nation since the year 70. That's 1,952 years. Now this is important because for 1,952 years there has not been a sacrifice made for the sins of Israel. Because there is no temple, there is no Ark of the Covenant. Well, the, the the instructions being given here to Aaron are all to take place in the tent of meeting, the precursor to the tabernacle. And if you look at verse 6, there's a particular sacrifice that needs to be done on behalf of Aaron, his wife, and his children and grandchildren, on behalf of his family. Aaron is to take a bull and a ram, and he is supposed to sacrifice those animals on behalf of his family. Why? Because they are sinners. And before they can uh, do a sacrifice or uh, uh, provide a sacrifice for the sins of the nation, they have to, have to first deal with their own sins, the sin of the family. And they are also to take two goats. Aaron is supposed to bring to himself two goats. One of those goats will live and the other one will die. If you move on, you see a further explanation of those goats. Beginning at verse 7 right down to 10. They are to take those two goats and they are to cast lots, dice, essentially. But they didn't have dice the way we have dice today. They didn't have a little cube with little dots on it. What they would use is um, uh, are, are actually the bones, the knee bones of a sheep. And it had little spurs on it. And depending how that bone fell, it would be indicative of one thing or another. And that was their version of, of dice. They were to cast lots. And what, wherever that lot would fall, the dice would fall on which goat, that one goat would be chosen to be sacrificed as a burnt offering, and the other, you will see, is going to become the Azazel, or the scapegoat. Are you seeing that in chapter 16, beginning of verse 7? Do you see it? The Azazel? If you move on, verses 11 through 14 gives a very specific arrangement of details regarding the sacrifice that's supposed to happen in the Holy of Holies. And then you come to chapter 16, verse 15, and the goat is killed. 
the goat that the law falls on is going to be killed and burnt as an offering and the goat's blood is going to be sprinkled very specifically specifically in a very specific way onto the ark of the covenant there the high priest will stand behind those curtains all by himself in that small room with the ark of the covenant and he will sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat or the ark of the covenant and then verses 16 through 19 details more instructions regarding the sacrifice and their uncleanness and their transgressions. Let me read 16 to you. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now notice two words there. Uncleanness and transgressions. Uncleanness, it's who they are. They are sinners. Just like all the rest of the world. Just like us. They're sinners. They're unclean. And transgressions. Transgressions refers to what they do because they are unclean. They sin. They do what they ought not to do. Why? Because we are unclean. They're sinners. And then we come to verse 20 through 22. Let me read those verses to you. And when he, when Aaron, the high priest, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Interesting, isn't it? Do you find it interesting? I do, obviously. I hope you do too. Verse 20 here says that once that burnt offering, that goat that is slaughtered, is offered as a burnt offering to God, and that process is complete, the priest is to take the living goat, and he is to present it. And then verse 21 He is to lay both of his hands on the head of that goat, that living goat, and confess all the iniquities of the people of Israel. That's a lot of people. You're talking about hundreds of thousands. All the sins of the people of Israel. The iniquities refers to who they are by nature. They are sinners. It's not about what they did. It's about who they are. They are by nature sinners. And then he is to confess all their transgressions. That's what they do. That's the sin they commit. They are iniquitous, therefore they commit transgressions. He is to transfer all the sins of Israel onto the head of the goat. And then the high priest is to hand over that living goat to a man who's been selected. And he is to take that goat and go far, far, far into the wilderness and release the goat. This goat is the Azazel, or the scapegoat. The scapegoat. Now, the goat is guiltless, right? He's guiltless. He's never committed a sin. Why? Because he's not a moral being. Humans commit sins because we are moral beings. A goat, an animal, a cat, a dog, 
is not a moral being. Not too long ago, I was bit by a dog as I was picking somebody up. And I said, does your dog bite? Oh, no, he doesn't bite. Oh, the dog bites. Everybody says, my, my dog doesn't bite until he bites. Right? Ripped my pants, broke my skin. But he still didn't sin. Because dogs are not moral beings. We are. Well, the goat is guiltless. But now he's going to bear the blame of the entire nation on its head. The living goat is going to absorb the sins of Israel. And then he's going to be sent away. Meanwhile, the sacrifice goat is, is absorbing the penalty of sin. He is slaughtered and burned. He dies. The scapegoat. Let's take a look at that second goat, the Azazel. As you well know, the scapegoat... Uh, a scapegoat is a person who is blamed for the wrong of others. This, by the way, is where we get the term scapegoat from. It's from here, the scriptures. Uh, you, you see, the, the Bible is in the air we breathe. Okay. The scapegoat is one who is blamed, though innocent, and has to bear the penalty for what he hasn't done, for what others have done. Nobody wants to be a scapegoat. Nobody wants to be innocent and blamed for everybody else. And, and we see this happen maybe in the workplace. Certainly we see it in politics, right? It's rather common in politics that somebody at the top does something wrong, but it, it somehow makes its way down the ladder. Uh, the person who was not guilty or less guilty somehow takes the brunt of the penalty and that person gets carted away. That person goes to jail or loses his position or his political um, uh, um, endeavors are just coming to an end suddenly and quickly. And that's the scapegoat. And that's what we have here. One who is innocent, the goat, is now going to bear the penalty for the sins of an entire nation. And the result then is, is that the nation is going to be declared innocent, no longer guilty. Why? Because the goat is paying the price, bearing the burden of the sin of the nation. The scapegoat takes the burden of guilt. Is it fair? Absolutely no. No, it's not. It's not fair at all. But it is expedient. It certainly is advantageous to the people of Israel. And then in verse 22, you see that the goat will then carry the sins of the nation far away into the wilderness, into this barren land where the goat will be released and they will not see the goat or their sins again. Interesting picture, isn't it? Very foreign to anything we would do or think of ourselves. If you keep reading down through the chapter, verses 23 through 28 give again very specific uh, rules for cleansing for uh, a, a, a cleansing ritual which the priest would have to go through after he does all this. And then verse 29, look at verse 29. There God establishes the calendar day every year for the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. It would be on the seventh month of the year, that would be the Hebrew Tishrei, and on the 10th day, on the 10th day of the 7th month. And this year, 
It fell on October 4 and 5, the evening of October 4, into the entire day of the 5th, this past Tuesday and Wednesday. And then, at the very end, you see chapter 16, verses 30 to 34, you see some particular requirements. Actually, beginning at verse 29, they are not to work. They are not to work on the Day of Atonement. Uh, but look at uh, on there, verse 30 and on. They are to humble themselves, or as we see here in the ESV, they are to afflict themselves. Interesting, right? They are to afflict themselves. And the word there really means in Hebrew, they are to be bowed down. And so some translators say they are to humble themselves. Uh, my version says they are to afflict themselves. In other words, they are to fast and uh, refrain from doing anything enjoyable. Not a very happy day, is it? They are to afflict themselves. Do nothing that would bring pleasure to yourself. And it says this statue is to last forever. In other words, for a long, long duration. Now, what I want you to see here, this is extremely important as we look at chapter 16 and this scapegoat. I want you to notice here that this is purely symbolic. This is all symbolic. It was very lengthy, very specific. It, it, it required an entire day, but it was to be only a symbolic ceremony. When I say only, I don't mean that it's not important. I mean that it is not actual. The sins of the people were not actually on the goat. It was a symbol. The life of a goat, as you well know, cannot pay the price for our sins against a holy and mighty God. Neither can a goat take on the sins of men, women, and children and lose it in a wilderness. It's a ceremony, a symbolic ceremony. So why so much attention? Well, here's why. Because the people are sinners and they need to be reminded that they're sinners. Because just like us, they forget as well. Think about it. Whenever you commit a sin, big or small, and at first it just pangs you with guilt. But it's just a matter of moments, at best a day or two, before you're used to it and it doesn't bother you anymore. How easily we forget that we sin against God. Correct? Are you anything like me? How quickly we forget that we are sinners. And the people of Israel were just like us. And they needed to be reminded, you are a sinner. You've sinned against a holy and mighty God. And this was intended to compel them, compel them to repent. At least once a year. Repent, But there's more to the story here. It was just not to compel them to repent, but it was also to show them that a price needs to be paid for their sins. It's not enough to say, well, I was wrong. Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. Please forgive me. God here is showing to them that sin has consequences. A price must be paid. And what we say, see here is that the price is actually a life. In this case, it was two lives, two goats. A price needs to be paid. There's a debt involved. There's a ransom involved. And God is showing that to them. 
So this is not as simple as you think, guys. You just can't go on your merry way thinking, oops, I did it again. But rather, there's a debt and there's a ransom involved. It must be paid. And so he provides this symbolic cleansing, this symbolic forgiving of their sins through this whole uh, Azazel or this scapegoat process. And by doing this, God actually maintains his blessing on his people. By doing this, it allows for God to keep on blessing his people without violating his justice, without ignoring his holiness. And we see even greater clarity to this when we go to the New Testament, chapter 3 of Romans and verse 25. And there it says that in God's divine forbearance, he passed over the sins of, or, or he passed over the former sins of those in the Old Testament until Jesus Christ came and then his blood would forgive them backwards. You see, the blood of Christ forgives us forward, right? The cross is behind us. But here, the blood of Christ will be applied to them backwards. Meanwhile, what they had to do is keep remembering, I need to have my sins atoned for God will do that for me. And this, this act with this scapegoat is a reminder. Animal, animal sacrifice was a cultural symbol to those people. It, it doesn't make much sense to us, but in that agrarian society, it made a lot of sense. And God was saying, listen, folks, the wrong needs to be righted the price needs to be paid. Atonement needs to be had. These sacrifices were very much a display of God's willingness to forgive. Do you see that? God was not trying to make their lives harder. He was trying to remind them that not only does sin need to be atoned for, the price has to be paid, but I'm willing to do it. It was a reminder to them of his love and his grace. Not everybody saw it that way. Eventually it became very religious, just something we do. But it was intended to be a reminder. It was a reminder that a life is the price for our sins. And so the Day of Atonement was indeed a picture of God's future provision of the Savior. He was saying, look, one day somebody is going to come and he will actually pay for your sins. But for now, use the goat as a reminder. Use the goat. So that the Old Testament law was a shadow of what was yet to come. And what we see here is that Jesus Christ did not negate the law. He did not obliterate the law. What he does is he fulfills the law. The law was about Jesus Christ. It was a picture of the Christ that would come. Well, let's take a look at the, the Day of Atonement today. We just, or the uh, Jewish people just celebrated that a few days ago. Let's take a look at the Day of Atonement today. If you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you do not believe that he is the Messiah, if you do not believe that he is the scapegoat, if you will, how will your sins be forgiven? It's a good question, isn't it? How will your sins be forgiven? They need to be forgiven. Well, actually, you can't pay for your own sins. 
and the penalty for your own sins is death. Eternal death. Big sins, small sins, eternal death. So how do you have your sins forgiven if you are outside of Jesus Christ? Well, the Jewish community does reject Jesus Christ through and through. Uh, they do not see Christ as the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior. They do not recognize Christ as the scapegoat that we see here in Leviticus 16. And they do not see him as the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. So today, for Yom Kippur, what the Jewish people do is, obviously, they do not go to work. It's a Sabbath. And many of them will wear white uh, to signify purity and righteousness. They'll refrain from any sexual activity. That goes back to Leviticus 15. They will not even wear leather shoes because in the past, the idea of wearing leather shoes was a real luxury and so they want to afflict themselves so they won't wear leather shoes. And they will fast for 25 hours, just over a day, 25 hours. And that excludes any food, any drink whatsoever. They are not to consume any beverage, any liquid, no water, any food of any sort. That would even includes brushing your teeth because that would involve water and maybe the ingestion of toothpaste. And so they don't even brush their teeth. It is an affliction, that's for sure. And they do not bathe. That's even a further affliction, maybe not just for them. What they do uh, see is this day as a means of expiating. Expiating is a theological term which means removing. They say this is going to be the removal of our sins of this whole past year and now I can be reconciled to God. So you can see that this is truly a holy day in the Jewish community and it all comes here to them from here in Leviticus chapter uh, 16. What I find interesting is that they have added to the practice. Today, many, not all, but many will also see the Day of Atonement as a day in which they are going to be released from any upcoming vows that they have made, but they can't keep. And so they'll be released of any of those vows. And so it is a very highly introspective, holy day requiring self-examination, confession, and repentance for themselves, but even for the entire nation. So as they approach the Day of Atonement, it's not just about me, it's about us, the Jewish nation. And of course, they're scattered around the world. In fact, at the very end of the Day of Atonement, they close out the day with these words, next year in Jerusalem. And here they bring about this idea of their unity as a people and, of course, their history in Jerusalem. One day we will all be there in Jerusalem. Now, what's missing in Yom Kippur or the present day of atonement? What's missing? The sacrifice. The sacrifice. There is no life being exterminated. In fact, the, the celebration has evolved uh, in some cases, in some parts of history, uh, the goat was actually taken into the wilderness and pushed off a cliff. Even though that's not what we, we see here in Leviticus 16. 
in some cases, they believe that the Azazel is a demon in the wilderness and that the goat is going to take the sins of the nation and place it on that desert demon. And that's not in the scriptures. But as you well know, religion tends to evolve and change and, and suit us. And that's why again and again I say we're really not interested in religion. We want to know what the word of God says. We're not looking for God. God has found us. Religion tries to find God. We don't have to keep looking. He's found you. And there it is in the scriptures. Unfortunately for the Jewish community today, there is no sacrifice. There is no scapegoat on which the sins of the people will be laid. There is no burnt offering which will absorb the wrath of, the, uh, of God for the sins committed. And so now for 1,952 years, the sins of Israel have gone unatoned for because there is no sacrificial system. It's a long time. Nearly 2,000 years. And yet, if they place their faith in Christ their sins will be atoned for. They will be forgiven. I'm not suggesting that they start the Azazel all over again. I am suggesting that, like everyone else, they need to turn to Christ, who is our scapegoat. Let me explain what I mean. Your earlier... Uh, Gabe read to us from Hebrews chapter 10, and maybe you noticed chapter 10, verse 10, says that Jesus Christ died once and for all. Once and for all. Through this symbolism that we see here, this goat, this scapegoat, and though it is very odd to us, right? It does draw for us a very beautiful picture if you just pause and consider it. You know, the, the, the gore of an animal sacrifice, that's not pretty. Um, the idea of a sacrifice in general, and that's just not the way we think. Um, when, when we think uh, of a debt, we don't think of killing an animal, do we? When we think of a debt, we think of um, a loan. Uh, we think of stubs and payments. Uh, we think of maybe incarceration because I didn't pay my loan. I was talking to somebody yesterday who, whose car was repossessed because he didn't pay his loan. We think of having to do overtime pay, uh, uh, work in order to get more pay. But we don't think of a sacrifice when we think of debt. And yet there's a significant moral debt here. A debt against an almighty and holy God. A debt of sin against him. That needs to be repaid. Well, despite our cultural differences, I still insist this is a beautiful imagery for us. Jesus Christ is our sacrifice, and Jesus Christ is our scapegoat. If you look at goat number one, you see that it represents Jesus Christ as the one who pays for our sins, who dies on our behalf. And goat number two represents Christ, get this, as the one on whom all our sins are laid and it is removed as far from us as possible. Jesus Christ is that goat that carries our sins away. 
If you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, if indeed you are born again, you know what you're never going to hear from the mouth of Christ. Oh, remember that day back in 2022 when you sinned against me. I can't believe you did that. Why? Because Christ forgives, pays the price, and he carries those sins far away. He's the scapegoat. Is it fair? <laughs> Absolutely not. But certainly expedient for us. Not fair to Christ. And Christ alone can pay for your sins. Another sinner cannot pay for your sins. You know why? He's got to pay for his own sins. Christ the sinless one is able to pay for our sins. Only Christ can be the atonement. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 reads this way. <coughs> Excuse me. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, the law can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every <coughs> excuse me <coughs> that are offered every year make perfect those who draw near. That is to say that Luke 16 perfected nobody. It just postponed the judgment of God. Look at verse 4, Hebrews 10, 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, we all know that logically. We all know that forensically, legally. We all know that if we commit a crime, we cannot go to the judge and say, Oh, judge, <laughs> I already killed a goat. I don't have to go to jail. Blame it on the, blame it on the goat. That doesn't work. But here we begin to understand it theologically as well. Our sins are placed on Christ. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says, And the Lord has laid on him, on the Messiah, on Jesus, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ we become the righteousness of God. So that Christ is our second Adam. Last week we saw that because of the first Adam we are all sinners. Christ is the second Adam from whom we get our righteousness. Romans 5.12 says that through Christ we are made righteous. Psalm 103 verse 12 is so clear. He says that through Christ our sins are carried away and separated as far as the east is from the west. And I just love that analogy. Because east and west never meet. North and south do. East and West don't. As Christ hung on the cross, he uttered the words, Why have you forsaken me? 
And it was at that point that God the Father was transferring the sins of the elect right on to Christ himself. And he became our sin. The unrighteous, rather, the righteous becomes sin for us. He's the scapegoat. By the way, this was not a potential atonement. Well, maybe, maybe he'll atone for your sins. No. It was a specific, actual atonement for those he calls and determines to save. And that's good news. Hebrews 10, 17 says, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Not only has Christ died for our sins, but he's carried them far, far away. In Christ, this ceremony of both goats has been fulfilled. The role of the scapegoat and the role of the sacrifice goat fulfilled. So my friends, we who confess our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we who have committed our lives say, Lord, I am a sinner, but I give my life to you to be my Lord, to be my Savior. We have this assurance. You are saved. You are forgiven. And God will never recall the sins that you once committed. They are gone. They have been carried away. They are paid for. And thanks be to Christ, our scapegoat. Amen. I told you it would be a, a simple sermon, right? But what a beautiful picture it is. What a beautiful picture it is. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, we thank you for being that scapegoat, for being the one who comes willingly and takes our place, that we, O oh Lord, would be able to live a new life, forgiven, redeemed, no longer debtors, but reconciled to you. We thank you, O oh God. We thank you, Christ, for your work. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening our eyes to this reality. Amen. Let's stand together. And let's sing. From, our, from the song on the wall. I apologize for the technical difficulty. As you can see, we have quite a bit of apparatus around here these weeks. Uh, we have all kinds of wiring problems all of a sudden, but eventually it'll get fixed. Of a 